Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone, and a warm welcome to today's public event. I'm Charlotte Bailey, Deputy Head of Fellowship Areas here at the RSA, a role that involves working really closely with our global community of 30,000 fellows who support the RSA mission. Now, I'm delighted to welcome today's speaker, science writer and broadcaster, Gaia Vince. Interested in the interplay between humans and the planetary environment, Gaia has held senior editorial posts at Nature and New Scientist, and writes and presents science programs for radio and television. In 2015, she became the first woman to win the prestigious Royal Society Science Book of the Year Prize solo for her debut, Adventures in the Anthropocene, a journey to the heart of the planet we made. Gaia's latest book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty and Time, tells the story of how our biology, environment and culture combined to enable humans to become a planet-altering force of nature and the most successful species on Earth. Reading the book, I was struck by the incredible breadth. Uh, it takes the reader on an engaging gallop across millennia. Combining illuminating stories with the latest research in archaeology, psychology, ecology, and sociology, Gaia unpicks what it is that makes humans different from our closest living relatives, and, as we change the planet we inhabit, looks ahead to how we'll need to adapt. So, please join me in giving Gaia a warm welcome as she shares some of the insights from Transcendence with us. Thank you, Charlotte. So, I'm going to talk to you about the most remarkable creature, the most remarkable species that's ever lived, us. This is our closest living relative, the intelligent, forest-dwelling, tropical forest-dwelling chimpanzee. Now, she's living her best life, hunter-gathering, she uses very primitive, basic tools, and really her lifestyle has not changed for millions of years. Her genes have slightly adapted over this time to better, better adapt her to surviving in her tropical forest environment. That's what genetic adaptation is for. Now, our species has only been around for some 300,000 years. So genetically, we're all almost exactly the same as each other. In fact, there is more genetic difference between two chimpanzees either side of the Congo River than there is between humans from different <coughs> continents. But look at where this tropical ape now lives and how from the Arctic to underwater to outer space. Now, our bodies, evolution has not adapted our bodies any better to surviving in the Arctic than a chimpanzee is adapted to surviving in the Arctic. In fact, perhaps a chimpanzee would be better at it because they're more hairy. Something else has happened. So humans have transcended the normal rules of biological evolution. And we've also changed the planetary environment. Rather than us changing to our environment, we've changed the planetary environment for ourselves. So Earth is now in human hands. How did we do it? 
How did a tropical ape become a planet-dominating force? Now, to me, that is the greatest question. Who are we? What makes us special? Now, I'm not the first person to have explored this. Uh, lots of people have, mainly men. Um, you've got the Bible, you've got Darwin's Descent of Man, you've got contemporary versions, um, Sapiens by Harari. But none of this satisfied me, so I set out uh, to answer the question myself. And um, I came to my research from a scientific perspective, and I had some preconceived ideas, uh, which I had to abandon almost immediately, like what do we mean by a progression, have we progressed? Those sorts of questions. But um, writing this book was, was what I discovered was, was utterly fascinating. And I want to share some of, some of that with you today. So um, this, this is where we started. Is it all down to our brain size? Are we simply cleverer, we've got bigger brains. Well, I mean, I know that everyone here, obviously, is the uh, most intelligent in London, but I think we, we all know of people who are not that clever, um, who nevertheless survive, perhaps they're very wealthy, perhaps they're even uh, world leaders, who knows? Anyway, <laughs> it's not our individual intelligence that has made us so successful. It is our collective intelligence. So we are so successful because we do something that no other species does. We cooperate in large numbers with people that we're not related to, that they might even be strangers to us. And yet we do it, we do it all the time. Look at us here, we're all sitting here, we're gathered here nicely and peacefully, no one's kicking off, no one's starting a fight. You would not get chimpanzees nicely sitting here like that. So we have collectively decided that we are going to observe certain behaviours in this social setting. Now, I didn't decide that, and you didn't decide that, but together we've decided to observe that. Um, and so that's, that's, that is something remarkable. We, we collaborate with each other in, in ways that no other species does, and it makes us extraordinary. It makes us able to survive because our survival, our individual survival, is, is dependent utterly on our group now. So um, not only would our societies not survive um, if we didn't collaborate, but we wouldn't survive as individuals because from birth we rely on each other more than any other species to survive. Even, even when we are born, our birth itself, mothers can't give birth alone. Uh, it's too dangerous for our species to do that. And the collaborations that our ancestral mothers made all that time ago underpins the social networking that, uh, that we rely on today. Collaboration is so important that we've developed rituals and, um, and practices that, that um, encourage it and make it feel pleasurable so we seek more of it. Because collaboration makes us better, more efficient hunters, because we're able to outsource the physical and the mental costs of hunting, of gathering food, of all that we do. And when I say the costs, I mean our energy costs. We, when we collaborate, we outsource our energy costs to that of the group and that of our technologies. And that is the key to our success. 
So every life form is limited by how much energy it can use, how much it can eat, how much it can get from the sun. And we, humans, are able to harness more energy than any other species, and it's allowed us to dominate the planet. We outsource our thinking costs, and it starts, it starts with how we um, use food. So uh, chimps have evolved to be excellent hunter-gatherers. I'm not a great hunter-gatherer. And yet, I regularly consume more calories than a chimp and with far, far, a, a tiny fraction of the time and energy expenditure that a chimp puts into it. And that's because I've outsourced my energy costs of my lunch to the group, to technology, and to fire. So my food is cooked. Humans depend on cooked food. Because when you cook food, you outsource the body's energy costs of digesting that food to the fire. Fire breaks down food. It makes it safer for us, so we're more likely to survive our dinner. But it also, it also breaks down the food. It does a lot of the work of our guts. That means that we were able to, uh, once, we, once we'd mastered, once our ancestors had mastered fire, it meant um, that they had access to enough energy to supply bigger brains and our evolution responded. We became cleverer. Now, what do we use our bigger brains for? Well, bigger brains are better at remembering stuff. They can remember more stuff and they can remember it more accurately. And that enabled an entirely new type of evolutionary process, human cultural evolution. And it's, it's this that makes us special, okay? Because our, our culture, our cultural evolution, our culture is cumulative. It builds on each other. It builds step by step. So we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel each time. It builds and it builds. And because we copy accurately, because our brains are big enough for us to remember the steps, we can copy the latest technique and we can evolve the technologies and uh, our practices, our behaviors, our tools, everything. And they evolve in complexity over time and they evolve in diversity as well. They diversify. And remember, we don't just rely on our individual brains to do all this. We're also relying on our, on our uh, collective brains. So, so if I need to make a tool, I don't have to figure it all out for myself. I can copy what we've all decided is the way to do it. I can rely on my group. So the more cooperative we became, the more we, our groups grew. We had bigger groups to collaborate with, which meant they held more examples of ways of doing stuff, which meant our technologies became more fancy. So just as genetic traits are copied over time and evolve, so too in humans are our cultural traits, our behaviors, our languages, and our technologies. Each person faithfully copying the normal way of doing things that has evolved in their society. And over generations, little tweaks are made, little modifications, little mutations to the ways of doing things. Most of what we do is just copying and combining <laughs> existing technologies, combining a different way of making a stone axe and putting a handle on it, hafting it. So 
Although we're biologically almost the same, culturally, we've become incredibly diverse. And our culture is part of what it means to be human. It makes us who we are at a very fundamental level. And I want to stress that. It's not a kind of add-on to our biological evolution. We are evolved as cultural beings. So we rely on our cultural knowledge, just as other species rely on biologically evolved instinct to help them survive. And we're immersed from birth in a cultural developing bath. And that teaches you how to interpret the world, how your perspective on things, what your values are, what, how you see everything. And, our, and because of that, our cultural evolution changes our bodies, changes our biology, and it changes our minds. So for example, if you grow up, if your culture in developing Bath is um, a literate society and you're a good reader, then the cognitive pathways that you develop prioritize words over faces. We word seek better than we, than we um, seek faces and, and recognize those patterns. So as a result, people in literate societies are worse at recognizing faces than people in non-literate societies. And the words that we use actually affect our perception of various things. So, um, so in a lot of um, cultures, a lot of languages, um, they don't have a word for certain colors. Um, and a lot of indigenous cultures have um, many words for different shades, but not many words for different colors. So in, their color terms are different. So if we look at this, um, pattern, for example, uh, the Himba people of Namibia, whose language doesn't have a word for blue, um, find it more difficult than English speakers do to see the odd one out in the second um, chart there. But they find it much easier to see the odd one out in this chart here. Can you see which one the odd one out is? It's very hard. So these are the Pantone numbers, and it's, um, it's actually that one at the top. German speakers <coughs> prioritize um, the goal in their language, whereas English speakers prioritize the action um, in their sentences. So when German speakers and English speakers are presented with this picture, English speakers are more likely to, and ask what the woman's doing. The, the uh, English speakers are more likely to say the woman's walking, whereas German speakers are more likely to say the woman is walking towards the house. And um, that extra information will be given because um, uh, because of their mindset. Has, um, so um, the interesting thing here is that bilinguals who speak English and German just as well will adapt what they say according to the country they're in. So um, if people are asked in English, but in Germany, <laughs> what they think, they will reply that the woman is walking towards the door, even in English, because they are in Germany. And uh, the same with Germans in, in England will say the woman's walking. So um, we get these, we get these um, differences. So your cultural developing bath adapts you, just as um, for other species, your, biolog your biological evolution, your bi biological adaptations for your environment. So it prepares you. And so environments, so um, in cultures where, uh, where people farm 
and farming developed across the world from about 8,000 years ago in different places. Uh, where people farm in a way where they have to collaborate a lot more. So that's um, like, for example, rice farming, where they have to collaborate over um, building irrigation channels and, and things like that. They have a more collectivist mindset than people um, who farm um, small holdings um, in the West, perhaps, um, who have a more individualistic mindset. So when they're shown this um, and asked to group two items out of here, uh, Westerners are more likely to group the bus and the train, the two items of transport. Um, whereas um, East Asians are more likely to um, pair the train and the tracks because they have a more holistic outlook on, um, they can't see the train without, its, without, in, without being in context of it having the tracks. Same with faces. East, East Asians tend to um, centralise their focus on a face, um, eye scans show, and uh, Westerners tend to triangulate between the eyes and the mouth. Now, these, because we copy our behaviours, these, um, these different mindsets can be uh, transferred down the generations. So um, different methods of farming are also important. The way, the, way we, the way we farm. So um, in places uh, that farm using hoes um, or, or digging sticks, the um, women can get involved a lot more in that and it's more compatible with childcare. So these societies tend to be a bit more egalitarian than societies that farm with a plough. And even generations later, when these societies are now urbanised, the same still holds. Um, formerly plough farming societies uh, tend to be more patriarchal than formerly hoe farming um, societies. Um, I'm running a little bit low in time, but I will just say um, I don't want any fights to break out if I bring this picture up. But <clears throat> our perception is what we, what we think is reality is so skewed and so um, driven by our cultural developing bath and our experiences. Our, um, um, people will genuinely think that um, this dress is either white and gold or blue and black. Um, it's actually blue and black. Um, and it turns out that, um, that um, how much light you're exposed to, if you, if you spend a lot of time outside in daylight, you will perceive one of these dresses a different colour than if you spend a lot of time in um, artificial light. So um, basically our brains invent our reality based on our cultural developing bath. The way our society presents the world to us and what is normal for our society. And these cultural biases, they don't feel like biases. They feel like reality. They feel very real and they feel right but they are invented and they don't just affect our perception of colour, transport and, and so on. Um, they affect whether we think people are good and bad as well. And that's really the um, Achilles heel of our cultural evolution because, because we evolved as cultural beings. We evolved to rely on our group and we evolved to be able to rely on this cultural knowledge bank. So if our survival is linked to the survival of the group, we need to know that we can trust that group. We need to know we can trust that knowledge. So if we see, if, if we copy faithfully and other people are copying faithfully, then we know that that knowledge is true. So we, we want people to be like us, to be good, to, 
to be copiers, um, then we can rely on their knowledge and we can rely on them, um, uh, their values and aligning their values. But the problem is cultural evolution, just like biological evolution, absolutely relies on diversity. Because if you don't have a big pool of very different ideas and very different things to draw upon, then, you don't, then you're not able to find that solution you need. We need to combine different ideas. We need to combine different ways of doing things and ways of seeing the world um, so that our culture can evolve and evolve in complexity. And there's a lot of examples of places where that hasn't happened and cultures have actually regressed. So um, human cultural evolution has made us the most successful big species uh, around. Um, there's now almost 8 billion of us around and we're hyper-connected. But um, we're also facing enormous environmental and social challenges. And the only way that we are going to meet these challenges is if we use that resource, if we use the diversity of mindsets that we've evolved as a species. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gaia, for delving into cultural evolution for us. Um, so um, you talked there about humans being a planet-altering force, and in the book you describe us as a superorganism, um, and this moment as being a time for uh, a great upswell. But you also kind of acknowledge our vulnerability. I'm wondering, is your vision for the future ultimately a hopeful one? I mean, you know, as a person with a vested interest in this planet, um, <laughs> it has to be. It has to be hopeful. And I think what we've shown through our evolution is that we are incredibly adaptable. Um, what we're facing now is, is unprecedented, but it's caused by the great success, our great success story. You know, we are living now much longer and much better than, than ever before but we have completely changed um, a lot of planetary systems that we rely on for our survival. So, um, so we do have some very real challenges and how we meet them. Um, really, it's, it's the next few decades that really count now. And related to that, do you think an understanding of how we've evolved to this point can help us to tackle those kind of intractable problems that we're, we're facing? Yes, I think um, one thing that came out really, really clearly in all the research um, for this was, was that humans work by collaboration. We are a cooperative species. That's how our culture evolves. That's how very, very, very little is done by um, invention. When people invent something, what they're really doing is combining what's out there generally or, or chancing upon something, or it's a tiny iteration. Now, the more we collaborate and the more um, interconnected we are, so the bigger the group and the more interconnected we are, that's when culture um, accelerates in complexity the most. That's when um, we get these great um, explosions in cultural diversity. And, and, and actually, over the last sort of century, we've seen as population has gone up and um, communications technology has improved and travel and all that sort of thing, we have seen similarly a massive explosion in in technology and um, in, in different ways, in artworks, in literature, and in everything. Um, so, so that's what I mean when I'm talking about um, 
I think that I think that humanity is is coming to a bit of a tipping point itself, and that we are now so many of us and so interconnected that we are behaving um, not as humans, but as a as a superorganism. Humanity is behaving as something different. It's not um, it's not you and I who created the climate change issue, for example, it's humanity as a whole that has done that. The way we act on the earth, it, it makes it very, very obvious. But in other ways as well, I think we can see, um, we can see um, the synergy of, uh, of, of, of our activity. So um, obviously you cover a great swathe of history, <laughs> all of history in the book, really. Um, and, and the way that you take us through it in that is by looking at fire, language, beauty, and time. So you touched there on fire and language. I wonder if you could dig a little bit deeper into beauty and, and what you mean by that and give us give us a flavour. Yeah, so, so um, in a, when I was looking at it, it is a huge subject, our human history and, and what, what on earth went on, why we became so different. And I put, I put it down to these four elements, and that's how I've structured the book. So fire is really um, how energy propelled us. Um, um, language is it's about communication and story and, and, and that sort of thing. And um, beauty is about, um, it's about how we impose a value on something which is of no biological value to us. It's, um, it's the subjective importance of things. And, and this is what draws us together. It's, it's, and it, it uses an enormous amount of energy, actually. And uh, people have died for their art. <laughs> and I don't just mean a whinging author sitting there at the computer. It feels a bit like you're dying for your art, but apparently it's not that. Um, so beauty is, it's about how we became different from all the other animals because we are driven by, uh, by monuments, by religion, by, um, by enhancing things, by beauty. And it's what helps us collaborate as a group. We decide something collectively. We decide something as important, um, even though intrinsically it has no value. Um, and that's, that actually helped us to trade um, by putting value in um, everything from necklaces to, um, to, 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 to shells. People traded in shells. You can't eat shells. You can't you know, keep warm with a shell. But people had to have them. And that, that was a huge driver of our evolution. Um, and time is almost the opposite of that. It's, it's how we, we invented this notion um, we needed to somehow synchronize our subjective view of reality, of whether a shell is important and uh, that sort of thing, and, and whether we should um, you know, pray in the morning to, for the sun to rise, with our objective, uh, with the objective reality. You know, we're, we're charting the rising and setting of the sun and the stars and, um, and when the harvests would come and all that sort of thing. So that's... that's um, the human need to um, experiment and, and find objective truth in the world. And that really recently, I guess, came, um, has come into huge fruition with the sciences, uh, which is, um, you know, has got us into space. 
you talk about truth there in the world and um, uh, you, you talk a lot about how uh, the evolution of language has allowed us to retain and share information, um, the positive and negative power of stories. Um, we've done a lot of work at the RSA on um, disinformation and I wonder, you know, what, what you make of it in, in relation to all of this and actually how recent a phenomenon is it? Well, it's not recent. <laughs> um, yeah, we're very story driven. Um, so we are copiers. If we hear something, we will copy it. We're, we're massively attracted to, to gossip. We, we love to gossip. And that's because it's a way of transmitting information about us. We're so reliant on our group, on, on people we're not related to, that we have to treat people as family. We have to be able to trust them. So we have to know their reputation and we have to be able to believe in them. And we find out about whether they're trustworthy or not and whether we can believe in them by uh, information traded between us, gossip. And gossip's really, really valuable. But of course, we can also use gossip to manipulate that information, manipulate um, ourselves and other people. And you can't control gossip about yourself. You, you can't, people have tried, but um, even when you're dead, people will gossip about you um, if you're sufficiently well-known. <laughs> so, um, yeah, disinformation is a very powerful tool and it's a very dangerous tool because, because we don't act as individuals so much as a society as well. And so we can completely sway, <coughs> we can sway um, um, large actions um, against or, or towards in directions that are prejudicial of ideas or, or um, supportive of them. And, and it doesn't necessarily um, need to be based on any truism. If you, if you just look at anything from the, um, the, the, if you look at the history of your own nation, you know, was, um, are we fantastic um, empire building heroes or are we actually massive exploiters of other nations? It, I mean, it depends who you talk to and, and everybody has a vested interest in telling you that because you need your story to believe in and you need to be able to identify with your nation. So these are all, these are all questions that um, we as individuals but also as societies have grappled with um, throughout time and, and are still grappling with. And another thing it feels like we're grappling with is um, kind of increasing signs of polarisation, division um, in, in society. And uh, you talk about the paradox that we're, we're primed for tribalism, but we rely on cooperation. So um, what of that? What of what the, what are the consequences uh, of, of polarisation, division? Yeah, well, the consequences of polarisation and division is, um, you know is war, is um, genocide, is um, absolute tragedy, of mm. course. Mm. Um, we know that, whereas we also know the consequences of collaboration can be, can be great. Um, <coughs> we are. We are primed for tribalism because, um, because our survival is um, dependent on the survival of our group. We need to strengthen our group, and we do that by strengthening it against other groups. So we are stronger if our group is stronger, we compete with other. We compete um, more strongly um, against other groups, and that's that makes us more likely to survive as individuals. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot of um, effort that goes into I 
making sure that you identify with your group, whether it's your accent, your language, your clothes, um, how you look, all sorts of things. And if, you, if, you, um, if two different groups end up looking kind of similar, um, say, I'll say uh, Protestants and Catholics in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, for example, they, I mean, biologically, they're exactly the same people. They're not, they're not um, you know, one, one is not completely different to look at. And then the small differences that exist in their cultures have to be absolutely accentuated so that, um, so that they can basically hate each other enough. That's the sense of tribalism. But at the same time, human societies evolve um, in complexity and are able to solve problems by collaborating with each other. And, and the thing is, <laughs> we, unlike um, many other species, we actually um, evolved to exploit this. So families many, in many, many places around the world will have members in different tribes. In a lot of places, um, there are actual social rules governing um, people not marrying into their own tribe. They have to marry into another tribe. And so these sorts of tools are actually incredibly useful. So through your in-laws, you can trace family members and you can um, build relationships, even if your tribes are officially at war. Actually, they're not. And if you look at the population genetics that's coming out now, we see that people have not stuck to their little tribes at all. They've interbred massively. That's why we're all so similar. We don't observe these tribal rules at all. That's... Um, officially, our social norms dictate that that's what we should do, but we don't. We don't because we do collaborate. Um, we do that all the time. We do it through trade. We have to do it through trade. We couldn't survive if we didn't. And, um, and really, that's how we solve our solutions, by, by collaborating with each other, by not um, isolating each other as, um, as nations or as... Um, uh, as groups, as religious groups, or, or whatever, we, we, we have to collaborate, and we have always done so. Um, one thing that I was curious about is the title of the book. Um, yeah, you, you talk about um, creation stories and meaning making, and for me, transcendence has kind of religious connotations. Oh, um, okay. Why, why, yeah. why that title? Um, well, for me, it doesn't have a religious connotation. What the, so the, the idea really is that we have, we've gone, um, originally, a long time ago, the subtitle for this was How Adam Bit the Snake, which does have a religious connotation. <laughs> it's the idea that, um, that um, the evolutionary process, the nature that birthed us, we are natural, we're part of nature, and then we turned around and said, no, we're going to control that. So, so we've kind of gone beyond. We have transcended the biological norms of evolution. There isn't another species that um, does that, that lives outside of its ecological niche, that does things it shouldn't do. You know, we can resuscitate people after death. We can change the genes. We can remake ourselves. We can, you know, we can give birth to a human in different ways. We, we, we have transcended the biological realm. And yet, of course, we're part of nature still. So um, that's the transcendence for me. 
Um, so final question from me before we open up <laughs> to the audience. Um, you leave us in the book with a really powerful idea um, of us being good ancestors um, and the responsibility of that. Um, what do you think that means for people who have different experiences, live in different parts of the world, and, and what does it mean for you? So one of the limitations, I think, one of our cognitive limitations is that we find it very, very difficult to, to look beyond the here and now, to plan um, beyond our, our little kind of operating temporal space. Um, we can't even imagine really ourselves dying. We certainly behave as though we're never going to die. Um, and yet we are, we know that, and we're making changes that will affect not just the next generation that we know, but generations beyond that. And humans always have done that. That's because we, because, um, because of our cultural evolution, what we do now is, is will have effects further down, let alone our environmental um, changes. Just culturally, we, we are all part of something much bigger. And <coughs> I guess it's, it's really a plea to... Um, to consider that, to, to try, and it's very difficult. It's very difficult to think of a time when we're not here and of the future, but to try and act um, as, as, though, um, as though what we do now matters, because it actually does. And there are indigenous communities have got many different ways of, of understanding this. There's the seven-generation um, concept that everything you do now you must consider seven generations from now so if you're going to chop a tree down how is it going to affect seven generations from now if you're going to change the flow of a river if you're going to um, build houses don't build it that it's just going to fall apart in 20 years think how will that um, affect seven generations from now so um, thinking of your descendants in that way and I don't think we do that um, in this western society enough um, at all and it's going to lead to misery for the next generations if we don't start thinking about that now. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to open up to our audience for your questions. Uh, just a reminder to keep your questions brief and to the point so we can fit in as many as possible. So do raise your hand if you would like to ask a question and one of my colleagues will uh, arrive with a microphone to take it from you. Yeah, I'm just um, wondering in terms of the story of us, um, how much of it is a story? Because the, the planet's been here for about 4.5 billion years. You're saying human beings have been here for 300,000 years. A mayfly's been here for 350 million years. So when we define our ideas of successful living, are we just defining it for our own pleasure? In a sense, a mayfly could say, I'm successful to the other mayflies because I've been here for 350 million years. And the whales could say, we can sing to each other across the oceans. So is it a form of conceit that we sit here and clap for ourselves when in 300,000 years, the way we've reshaped the planet will be the end of our story and the planet will continue and we're just a song in an album and a collection of songs and nothing more? So when I say successful, I'm talking... Um um, in biological terms, in ecological terms. So I say that we're the most successful big animal. So in terms of sheer numbers, so success in biology is measured by um, population size. 
it means how many individuals basically can use the environment that they live in. So bacteria are very successful. But so in terms of big animals, we're the most successful big animal. And the next in line are the creatures that we have made to feed and serve us. So um, we've made them through breeding, such as sheep. They don't exist naturally. Chickens don't exist naturally. We've made them. They didn't exist before. You know, um, in terms of morals and ethical success, that's a completely different question. Yeah. Um, what, how do we define success in life? What, you know, are we successful? These, these are very different um, questions. And, um, you know, uh, I don't know about mayflies, um, but animals with consciousness, you know, uh, in terms of, like, well-being and enjoyment in life, maybe we're not the most successful. I have no idea. And it, it depends on... <coughs> depends on how you class success. But in terms of biologically successful, in terms of the numbers of us, but yeah, I mean, at the moment, we, we are massively risking, as you point out, we're massively risking this great success because um, if we continue the way we are going, this, we will not be able to sustain certainly these numbers um, on this planet. Um, if you think the only reason, um, if you look at, uh, the, the only reason we can sustain this number of people on the planet is because of our infrastructure, and that includes farmlands, roads, cities, etc. If you took all of that away and we were just hunter-gatherers, we couldn't sustain a population of more than 10 million people, certainly not nearly 8 billion. Um, and what we're doing now threatens that infrastructure massively. So... Um, and you're absolutely right, the planet itself is not threatened. Unfortunately, certain species are threatened because of us again, and we've made a lot extinct. Um, yeah, so, so success. Um, I was just speaking in biological terms. It's a, it's a value-laden term in other respects, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, we've got uh, one over here, and then we'll take you over there. Um, hello, Gaia. Hello. So following from your... Um, answer. Um, I'm really concerned with pragmatic steps. So based on what you've just said and what you've analyzed, based on your your knowledge from the human story and human history, and I presume your background is as a biologist, right? Well, chemistry actually, but yeah. Okay, so then what practical steps do you think we should take? Because me as a young man who um, grew up with experiencing a lot of racism, being born and raised here from both sides, Chinese people and locals. And then me being part of the underground dance community, experiencing poverty. Um, and then now a lot of me and my friends are trying to understand how best we progress as individuals, as, as a community. Um, people are debating about politics, whether to vote or not, um, whether to be vegan or not. Um, things like that. So what practical steps would you suggest to address the problems that you see us having now and that we may have in the future? Like, what would you suggest? Because that's what I would be really concerned. Like, what practical steps I can take or we as a people? Okay. So, I mean, that's quite a big question. Solve poverty and racism and... <laughs> but, yeah, I know. Maybe so, I can narrow it down. So like, the thing is, so, politics so, here and, so, for example, so, what's happening in Hong Kong. Okay, things like so... That. Yeah, what's happening in Hong Kong is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, um, I've been following it um, 
So for me, as individuals, we are fairly, um, we're very small cogs in a massive system. It's humanity that is causing a lot of these systems. Um, the way we solve our problems is as bigger groups, we have to collaborate. And we do that as individuals through voting. Voting is really important. We need to vote for, we need to vote for, um, for parties or people that, um, that, uh, that promote inclusivity. Because as soon as people are not part of um, the, if, if, if people's values are not aligned and if they are not included in, um, in the uh, success story of their nation or the success story of uh, their tribe or their group in some way, if they feel excluded from that, then they feel a separate, they become, they feel like a separate tribe because they're treated like a separate tribe. And then you get friction and then you get, um, you, then the people that are inside that tribe see those people as outsiders. And there's a lot of research showing that if you see somebody as an outsider, you actually devalue them as a human. You dehumanize them. You see them. The, um, a lot of um, uh, brain scan studies have shown you, you, your brain responds to them as though they are an object rather than a person, which is horrifying. Right, so we need to be aware of that, and we need to we need to be much more inclusive in those sorts of things. But not just, I would say, not just as um, as small societies, small tribes, as nations. We have to be inclusive as groups of nations as well. We're not going to solve these problems, these huge, huge global problems, planetary problems, um, as individual nations. We are only going to solve them as big cooperating blocks that agree to um, reduce carbon emissions, to um, alleviate poverty by reducing, um, by, um, by, by um, reducing the um, trade injustices that we have with various nations. And we have to agree as, as big cooperating um, structures because we don't solve these problems as individuals. We solve them and just as we create them as big groups as big blocks. Okay, so we've got another question here, and I would just say our <clears throat> questions so far have all been asked by men, so I'd invite any women in the audience <laughs> to have a think, and we'll come to you next. Thank you. You'll, you'll like my question, um, which is about inclusion and, and women. Um, one of your slides compared the use of hoes with plows. And it reminded me of um, a BBC programme I watched recently, which I think is still available, very short. It was about female-led redesign of urban spaces, like bringing together nine blocks in Barcelona, that sort of thing. Very, okay. very interesting. Very interesting. The point, I suppose, is it, there's a quote by Marshall McLuhan, first we shape our tools and then they shape us. If you agree, what do you think that implies about sort of decision-making and design in the sort of next era for, for human beings. And I'm thinking, yeah. for example, you know, NASA putting enough spacesuits exactly. so, so that women can so, wear. So in the West, our societies are incredibly patriarchal and we see the problems with that all everywhere. Um, inclusivity means, it means including everybody and their perspectives and their, um, 
um, their body shapes, their experiences, their mindsets. Um, I've explained how they, all these different mindsets um, occur. And, and from that, we get a much richer experience. If we don't see the problem because, um, because we don't experience it ourselves, we won't design for it. And yes, our towns are are not designed by, um, I haven't seen this program, it sounds really fascinating, but, but ta uh, towns are not des designed by a very inclusive mix of people and we see the problems all the time. I mean, you can't, um, I didn't realize until I became a mother and had to push a pushchair around, actually, the streets are not designed for pushchairs, so they're certainly not designed for wheelchair users, blind people, you know, um, it's, it's very different. And if you go to other countries, um, a lot of developing countries, it's far, far worse, you know, and, um, and the, uh, the wheelchairs are much uh, are less sophisticated there. So, so disabled people have even more trouble, you know, the, the, with everything, we have to, we have to, we have to design for, um, to be as inclusive as possible for the users and, um, and uh, the, the, for the, for the citizens that, that live in that space. And um, also be very aware of the environmental concerns that we live in a world um, with a massive population, with limited resources and with uncertain climates. So everything we design should be designed with a thought of, that end, of how that end product um, is going to be reused or how the constituents of it, what's going to happen to the product. Don't, you know, not just to think, um, is it going to work and is it going to sell? We need to think a lot further ahead and who is going to use it and who is going to, you know, are we just going to ship that waste to another place where they have to deal with it without the resources? You know, anyway, I won't go off on one. <laughs> Come to you, thank you. Hi, um, so far, your analysis is very good, but so many things have gone wrong. You're talking about getting people to vote. You hear people all the time saying, I don't understand what good it is for me to vote. They don't understand the idea of the collective. The failure of the United Nations is something which, I don't know whether you've analyzed why that is, why these wonderful possible ways of humanity getting together are now failing. And we've got the situation in China, the situation in the United States, very, very bad. I mean, it's almost the worst failures that we've had for, uh, I mean, except for the probably the Second World War and the First World War, um, for, for many, many years, millions of thousands of years. It seems to be it's all happening now. Um, I'm just kind of wondering if you have any solutions and, and what will you do, what could you do? to rectify the way you see things going, well, particularly I mean, on the climate the thing change. Is if, so. if I was dictator of the world, and I urge you to make me dictator <laughs> yes, of the world, yes, I would yes. have some solutions to all of these problems, for sure. <laughs> I, I was told before I came out here that the RSA is very much a non-political organisation, and I mustn't go off on any um, rants about anything. <laughs> So, yes, I mean, I think we are facing, we're facing a really, really difficult time. I have trouble going to sleep when I see, we've just talked about the situation in Hong Kong, you know, it's, it's everywhere at the moment. We're seeing a rise of populism. Populism is very dangerous. It's, um, it is a denial of complexity and um, complexity exists 
And if you don't acknowledge it, and if you don't acknowledge um, the different inputs into the decisions that are made, and if you, you seek a very simple solution, which, um, which might be um, blaming all the problems on a group of people, for example, then, you know, we, we've seen how that turns out. Um, it is very frightening. Um, I, I don't know. My, my, I mean, my solution is vote. Unless you're going to vote the wrong way, don't vote. <laughs> there are a variety of political parties <laughs> yes. and options to vote for. Yeah. There are. I mean, it's, it is a, it, I mean, it does feel, it feels like an unusually bad time. Maybe, maybe the time in which you're living always feels like that. I don't know. I can only speak from my time and my experience. But, but um, it does feel, it feels frightening. But then at the same time, we, you know, maybe this is a blip. Maybe um, these situations will turn around. The good thing about um, a fixed-term democracy is, is that, you know, people have to leave that you don't agree with and, and the system can get churned up and <coughs> new people can come in and things can turn around. You know, I, uh, I don't know. Education, I think, is one thing. Though. I mean, I, I, I would say education, but um, I don't know if that... I really... I genuinely don't know if that's the answer. Um, and what sort of education? What sort of education? So I think... Um, I think there needs to be a lot more accountability, I think. I mean, there's... there's I, I could talk about this for hours, but, but you know... Um, What's going on with the with a lot of these situations? I think I, I don't want to get too political, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm finding it hard to answer a really political question without being political. Uh, I think we've got time for one more question. <coughs> Hello, this is uh, from Lucy, who's on Twitter. Uh, she asks, "How much does neurodiversity affect the models you discuss?" Um, she says, as an autistic adult, uh, she finds these filters less compelling than others around her, um, and she believes this is because her cognition is more objective and situational. Yeah, that's certainly been that's certainly been claimed. Um, there is a school of thought which thinks that um, the reason autism um, occurs and and those spectrum disorders um, still persist in quite a high proportion in our societies is because they do offer a different and uh, more objective way of looking at the world. If we look at... Um, um, so that, that is an Achilles heel of humans, that we are subject to a lot of biases. Chimps, for example, don't, don't suffer from biases in the same way that we do. Um, and so they are able to do all sorts of things um, better than we can um, from hunting strategy to all sorts of things. They, they, don't, um, they don't sort of think... They don't um, necessarily uh, think that, you know, where they last found something, it will occur again because, you know, a deer or something, it will occur again. Do they hunt deer? They don't hunt deer. Um, a small animal. <laughs> Whereas we, we do. We think, oh, that's the lucky place, and so we will go there. Um, so um, being less susceptible to biases and more objective um, to some degree, as, um, as a lot of um, autistic spectrum disorders 
um, make you does um, may may well hold key to um, society's um, survival as a group. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, uh, oh, I think we've got time just for one more question, <laughs> just at the back there. Thank you. Yes, um, you mentioned that societies don't necessarily evolve to be more <coughs> complex. Sometimes they can regress to be simpler. Uh, I think you said when they're cut off. Can you give us some examples of that happening? Yeah, so, so, um, so when we think about progression, um, and when we think about our evolution, we kind of think what's happened is we, we just get better at stuff. You know, um, a long time ago, we just had um, stone tools, and now we have the iPhone. Aren't we great? Um, and certainly it takes time for, because, because evolution works by copying, 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 and mutation and evolving in complexity over time. So it takes time for these things to evolve, and it requires large interconnected populations to come up with all these um, solutions. But where that has broken down, as it has um, in the past, where populations have become isolated, what's happened is that pool of ideas um, has become much smaller. So we see this in biological evolution. You have um, inbreeding, and sometimes you get an extinction because mutations creep in, and, and it's not a viable population anymore. Well, the same thing happens with culture. So, for example, um, a group of um, uh, Inuit became cut off um, uh, by, um, from, from the rest of the population. And um, what happened was um, the elders and a lot of the, um, knowledge, the knowledge holders in the society died out in an epidemic. And because these are quite remote communities, what happens is a lot of that knowledge was lost. And so they're very sophisticated tools and um, uh, kayaks and um, ways of hunting got lost within a few generations. And they became simplified so much um, that they weren't able to um, hunt sufficiently and were on the verge of starvation um, until they were rescued by another um, uh, um, Inuit group that came and saw them and, and they were able, because we copy, we don't have to um, reinvent the wheel, we don't have to make it up the solution ourselves, they were able to very quickly regain the culture they lost. So basically they copied this other tribe's um, uh, techniques, their boats, their um, hunting tools and so on, um, and were able to survive that way and in time um, relearnt and re, um, re developed their own um, style of boats and hunting again. So um, there, have been, there have been quite a few occasions where this has happened. Tasmania is another famous one. When, um, when, uh, the, uh, when Tasmania was um, first colonized by Europeans, the people that had lived there who um, uh, were originally mainland um, Aboriginal groups with incredibly sophisticated tools and hunting equipment and all sorts, um, they, they had been isolated so long and had such a small population that they had lost the ability to do pretty much everything. They couldn't um, fish anymore. They were surviving on incredibly basic um, equipment compared to their, basically their... their um, their genetic cousins just over um, the strait 
um, which, were, which were, had still had the sophisticated equipment. We've been through dark ages where literacy has been lost. You know, um, this can happen. Collaboration, inclusivity of ideas, of people, of ways of thinking is, is really vital for um, the enrichment of our societies in every way. And, and finding solutions to our huge, huge problems. I think that's a really <laughs> nice note to, to end on. I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. But thank you so much, Gaia. And thanks to the audience here and everyone joining us online for your questions. Uh, a reminder that Gaia will be in the foyer for a short while after this, signing copies of her book, Transcendence. Um, if you'd like to know more about the RSA and keep up to date with uh, our own efforts to make change in the world, do sign up via our website uh, to get details of our programmes of work and, of course, of future events like this one. You're also invited to visit Rothmel's, our coffee house, on levels minus one and minus two, where you're very likely to bump into a fellow or a member of staff who can tell you more about what we do. Uh, but for now, please join me again in thanking our brilliant guest speaker for today, Gaia Vince. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.